You're listening to Angus Underground, featuring insight, opinion, and answers to the questions on everyone's mind. Prepare to be educated, entertained, and empowered with insight, news, and conversation with today's newsmakers. From the well-known to the not-so-well-known, raise your flag and join the revolution as your hosts, David, Joe, and Corbin, take you underground. Welcome to the Angus Underground. We've got a fantastic off-the-charts episode today. We're going to be joined by a, a personal friend and someone who's got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. And guys, we, we just finished up recording it, so we're we're taping the open right now. Man, he blew me away. So, Corbin, I know uh, there was a lot of what our guest said that that really hits you on a number of different levels. What are you feeling right now? Well, my initial thought is that uh, this is going to be one of those episodes that's going to really resonate with a lot of folks. And it's going to be one of those that uh, I'm going to want to listen back to. And, and there's going to be stuff that I miss. And it's just going to be one of those things that's it's going to kind of be, I, I don't want to say, it's it's going to be like a, a, a kind of a Bible for people that they're going to be able to live by that's going to help them out in so many ways. You know, it's not very often that you get to talk to somebody that, that has such a wealth of knowledge in so many topics you know just a sharp guy tom brooks is just a sharp guy absolutely yeah yeah and and on the surface you know you're going to read the show notes before you listen to the show and and you're going to say ah this guy's going to talk about animal health and that's pretty boring and he's going to talk about finances and that's pretty boring but but no tom delivers because he's had such a depth of experience in both those areas and and can relate to what we all go through on a daily basis and, and just brings it home and, and gives us a lot of, if not solutions, he gives us the ideas and perspectives for us to expand our thought on those two topics. I'd add, if you get bored, just fast forward because it'd be something <laughs> new. It's like potpourri, right? Absolutely. You're moving along right quick. Yeah. Never underestimate the value of a ranch kid is what came yeah, to no my kidding. mind. Like when you think about ranch kids that we're all raising um, or our friends and colleagues are, the way that they can just take those life lessons and apply them to different avenues uh, uh, that are that are applicable to different people, it just it's so incredible. And I just, for us, the vaccine part, the herd health part, some of us have heard a lot of it. I still gleaned out some new information. But once we got to his financial piece, I, uh, man, I'm like, can we go? Can we keep recording? No, we're at an Absolutely. hour and twenty-five minutes. We're at an hour and twenty-five. So super cool. I'm excited for you guys to see it. I think he talks about a lot of things we need to be talking about more in, in the ag industry. And I know we're going to get the hate mail from people who are going to be like, "I want to know what to AI my cows to." We'll get there. There's plenty of time for that. But if you want deeper discussion, this is the episode for you right here. And if you want a definitive answer on what to AI your cows to, you're going to have to vet it out yourself, too. I'll just put that right in there. <laughs> but, it, you know, this guy's like David said, he's done it. So it's not like somebody just telling you in theory how it should be. I mean, he's been through a lot of stuff on the the vaccination and the financial side. So it was it was really awesome, I thought. Spoiler alert, he paid off 480000 so you better keep listening. <laughs> no kidding. In 2006 money. It was that 2006 money, too, so it'd be like double the value. In four yeah. years. Yeah, yes. no, it's uh, quite a story, but let's just jump right into it, guys. Uh, we're going to take a short break. 
before we bring our guest in, but uh, our guest today, real special guy, personal, I'm proud to call him a, a personal friend. He's Tom Brooks. Uh, he's from Vaughn, Montana. He's not only, a, as Joe said, he's a ranch kid. Uh, he's a cattleman, commercial cattleman, uh, stalker, purebred producer. I mean, he's done it, done a little bit of everything. He's also what I would deem an animal health expert. I mean, he's he's worked uh, in the feedlot industry, cow-calf, from Southern California, Arizona, all the way to Florida. I mean, he he's seen it, folks. He has seen it. And, and as we uh, learned, as we were interviewing, uh, Tom is a, a former financial planner and a new author. And uh, we'll... we'll Certainly want to share uh, his book that's coming out here in April. It's called Paid in Full. But we urge you to stay tuned. Just on the other side of this commercial break, we'll bring in Tom Brooks. Hey, Underground, I want to share with you some details about one of the really good breeding programs in the country. Brent and Tina Wieselmeyer, along with their family at Vision Angus, are preparing for their 25th anniversary sale to be held Monday, March 6th in North Platte, Nebraska. The Vision Angus Herd is built with the commercial cow-calf producer as their primary focus. That direction has been successful as many have been buying their bulls from Vision since that very first sale 25 years ago. A great program is measured by the success of their customers. Several Vision Angus bull customers have reported an 80% breed up in the first 30 days of the breeding season. While another customer annually feeds between five to 600 head of Vision influenced steers. From the group harvested in 2022, only two failed to achieve at least choice or prime. Folks, I can attest, those results don't happen by accident. The Vision Angus program combines the industry's best sires with a cow herd that has the correct balance of traits, which positively impact the profitability of their customers. This year's sale will feature 70 stout-made bulls and 15 heifers from the deepest, most uniform set of replacements ever raised at Vision. The sires represented include Atlantis, True North, Fair and Square, Rangeland, Deep River, Three Rivers, Plus One, and Accomplishment. See the quality and experience the value at Vision Angus. For more info, go to visionangus.com or follow Vision Angus on Facebook. We look forward to seeing you in North Platte on Monday, March 6th. We're extremely pleased to introduce you to our next guest. Our next guest is a good friend of mine, a fellow Montanan. Uh, he's a cattleman. Much to his dismay, I'm going to call him an animal health expert. And he is an author. So uh, please help us welcome in Tom Brooks from Vaughn, Montana. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the underground. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's it's our treat. You're you're one of the more uh, uh, intriguing people that I know. Uh, you've got a varied background, and I don't know what the the terminology is. Uh, a master of of many different fields and traits. But Tom, uh, let's let's jump right into this. Give us a little bit of your background. I know you're a rancher at heart. Just start from the beginning and and tell us about yourself. Well, I uh, I guess from an education standpoint, I graduated from Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, got an animal science degree there. 
went to work. Uh, before that, I had managed yearlings operations in Northern California and uh, worked for Cal-Calf operations on the central coast of California. Went back to college when I was married and had three kids, so college was a little different for me. Um, got out and went to work in the feed industry. Worked in uh, Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington. Uh, coordinated a lot of uh, weaning programs and uh, cow, cow nutrition programs on st stubble, corn stalks, things like that. And then uh, uh, was transferred to Utah, covered Wyoming to Eastern Oregon. Uh, basically the same thing. And then in 1990, uh, switched gears from animal health, from uh, nutrition to went to work for um, SmithKline Beach of Animal Health at that time. Uh, I was the first livestock rep that they ever had in Arizona. And so my job was to uh, be an animal health rep for Arizona and the Imperial Valley feedlots. Uh, after a year of that, they increased it to where I had uh, the dairies in Southern California, the Imperial Valley feedlots, Arizona, and also Hawaii. And so I dealt with with all the ranches in Hawaii. So at that time, they were trying to figure out how to put cattle on containers. They'd lost their feeding processes there in, in Hawaii. No way to get them killed there. So they were putting them on containers and shipping them over here, which they still do. So we worked on a lot of animal health programs there. Is how do you how do you vaccinate a calf that's going to go into a container and live on a container for 12 days before he gets to Long Beach, California, or San Francisco, or someplace, and then and then get on a truck and go to Kansas. Wow! Right? Yeah. Wow. Right. So there was a lot of programs that we developed as far as from an animal health standpoint, what's the best way to prepare your calf from not only where he is, but more importantly, where he's going to go and what what kind of pressure is he going to be under when he gets there? Mm. So uh, then after that, I was uh, promoted and moved to Texas. And I uh, was became what they called a regional manager. I managed the cow-calf business from New Mexico to Florida and uh, had several reps that reported to me at that time. And of course, now you've got a whole nother set of circumstances with Southeast cattle. And I'd had some experience in receiving Southeast cattle in, when I was in Arizona, because that's where they used to get a lot of their feeders. But, but then I, I got a chance to see where they grew up and it was a completely different environment, as many of you know. And uh, then Pfizer bought us. And so I went to work for Pfizer and, uh, and I was moved to Montana. And I managed the cow-calf business from New Mexico to Canada. Wow. <laughs> Along the inner mountain states and central North Dakota and eastern Oregon and eastern Washington again. So at the same time, we also had our own operations of uh, registered and commercial cattle. And so, you know, I could kind of feel the, point, the pain from both sides. And, uh, and also, you know, the good things. But I got a lot of experience on different types of cattle and different types of situations and what they what the cattle were feeling more than anything and, and how to help them get through those tough times hmm. wow wow and tom you you retired from zoetis uh how long ago was that i retired in the end of 2020 i went back to work for zoetis i left for a few years i was a financial advisor came back and went to work when zoetis was formed I went to work for Zoetis, and uh, my territory was uh, southeast Idaho and western Montana and a little bit of western Wyoming. So I had, uh, you know, the prettiest part of the world and as far as uh, places to drive to. 
uh, and the same set of challenges, you know, all different kinds of operations from small operations with 25 cows to ranches with 5,000 cows. And so, you know, we had all that and a lot of purebred operations, as you know, David, there was a lot of them in Eastern Idaho and in Western Montana. You have a lot of purebred operations. Yours was one of them. And so uh, a lot of different circumstances there. So once again, that's, and that's where I retired was from there. Yeah. And uh, in retirement, you, you haven't totally retired because uh, you're still in the cattle business. True. <laughs> in in fact, uh, yeah, Tom owns a couple of donor cows with us. And uh, I think that's, what's really fun here is, yeah, Tom and I had a relationship, you know, uh, surrounding animal health and, and Tom advised us on, on, what would work for us or what wouldn't, but, but now we've got a dis- different relationship. Uh, we can talk about matings, what we think will work and what won't. And so it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun getting to know Tom over the years, but, uh, so Tom, let's, let's dive right into animal health here. Uh, I think this is a topic that's uh, germane to every one of our listeners out there. And the one thing, uh, in listening to you recount all the different areas of this business that you've been in, it really forced me to realize, hey, there is no one size fits all. I mean, what what you would have advised me on when I lived in eastern Idaho, you know, we have different challenges here in western Montana. Yeah, it's only 400 miles, but we've got a little different climate. We've got different grasses. Uh, we've got different stressors on these cattle. And, and I think that's extremely important when we think about this. Could you talk to that? Because we, we've got listeners in the Southeast, in the Northern Plains, in Canada, Australia, all over uh, the globe. Sure. Uh, you know, I think you hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, what you do and what your neighbor does across the road from you could be completely different. So you need to set up a program that works for you and you need to work with your veterinarian, your animal health advisors, uh, whoever you get your your advice from, but uh, you know, I would certainly recommend your veterinarian be involved in it because they have more experience as far as what the diseases are, are that are prevalent where you are. But the other thing you have to look at is where, where are my cattle going when I get done? You know, if, if I'm selling calves right off the cow on a video auction, for instance, and those calves are going to get loaded up and put on a truck and sent to where I don't know where they're going, that buyer will probably have a set of requirements that they want. They may tell you, yes, I want the standards, IBR, PI3, BVD, BRSV, but I also want Haemophilus, and I want a seven-way, or I want an eight-way if we have red water where we live and so forth. So you need to remember those things, too, when you're going. And the other thing is, I think that's the most important, I tried to stress this at a lot of producer meetings, that brand that you put on your cattle is your returns postage stamp, right? Feedlots today can track exactly where cattle come from. They know where they came from. They know who they bought them from. So if they have trouble with your cattle, they're, they're not going to call you up and say, you know, we had a problem. They're just not going to buy them anymore. Right. So, and I, I dealt with that a lot when I was in Arizona, because some of those ranches, the cattle were completely naive. You know, when you run six cows per section in Northern Arizona, two cows get together and die. It's hardly an epidemic, right? So right. they felt like, well, our cattle are healthy when they got on the truck. It must be your fault. But but you dump them off at a major feedlot in Colorado, and those cattle have never seen anything in their life. They're exposed to every disease that ever went through a feedlot, and they have no way to protect themselves against that. 
And it got to the point as early as 1990s, I remember one large, really large ranch, I won't name the name, but their veterinarian called me and said, we got to figure out a way to do this because this major feedlot in Colorado said, we will no longer buy your calves because we can't keep them alive when they get here. Yeah. And the ranch's attitude was, well, they were healthy when they got on the truck. You must have screwed them up. Yeah. Well, so then we had to figure out how do I get a mod, and the, and the and the veterinarian told me that the feedlot requested a modified live vaccine. So how do I get those in those cattle? Somewhere in that management process, it fits for them because they're a wide open range operation. They branded on the range. You know, their their claim to fame was that their cows here very rarely ever saw a shoot. So I guess I have a question that kind of piggybacks on that. Whenever you were shipping those, and this is just just purely informational, but whenever you were shipping those to the feedlot in Colorado, would was it your goal to, uh, what's the timeline look like on getting a shot in them for it to be effective? Because I know if you just give it right before you put them on the truck, I mean, maybe that's not even, is that even going to do anything if they're getting there within, you know, a day and then. Absolutely. That's a great question because that comes up a lot. And the answer is no. You need to get that shot into them well in advance. Um, you know, I went overseas and I got shots before I went overseas, but they didn't give them to me on the airplane. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Right. Okay. You get them. You get them thirty to sixty days in advance. It takes about fourteen days for for a vaccine to really get assimilated into an animal's system and for them to build some kind of a response. If you look on a killed vaccine, it'll tell you to revaccinate in in uh, four to six weeks. If you look at a modified live, it 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 will it will tell you that they need at least a period of time for that to to be rotate through the system and become an immune response. And usually it's about 14 days to 21 days. So we've always recommended if you're given shots 45 days before, you got a much better chance of having that animal be protected as opposed to giving it to them on the loading chute on the way up, you know. Absolutely. And and you brought up a good point, Tom, because I've heard it too. Many, many years ago, I used to coordinate uh, customer cattle, customer calves for a feeder sale. And, you know, we wanted all these cattle vaccinated the same, you know, same time period, same vaccines. And yeah, the excuses we kept hearing was, well, I'm not going to get paid for it. Or this isn't how my daddy and granddaddy did it. <laughs> But I look at it as uh, you're buying, you're almost buying a, an insurance policy on those cattle. And, and it's, it's almost, uh, you, you're, you're trying to ensure your customer satisfaction. You know, we, we all want ha happy customers, whether we're purebred breeders or cow-calf producers. We want that customer to feel like he's getting his money's worth. And so I think it's real cheap insurance to, and it's a hassle. I mean, who likes to gather cattle and vaccinate? That's no fun. That's funner if we're branding them in the process. But I, I just think it makes a lot of sense to get vaccines into these cattle. Absolutely. Tom, you brought up uh, modified live versus live. Perhaps walk us through the differences of those two. Sure. Uh, what starts off with when you take a vaccine, if it's a virus vaccine, so in virus I'm talking IBR, PI3, BVD, BRSV, those are the major viruses. And then your bacteria are, are like Vibrio, Lepto, Clostridials, like 7-way, 8-way, and so forth. The viruses, you start off with a disease-causing virus. 
And in a killed vaccine, what they do is they basically kill that disease-causing antigen. They put it in a adjuvant like aluminum hydroxide in the old vaccines. Now, the adjuvant is what, if you take a, a bottle of killed vaccine and put it on a shelf in your refrigerator and you come back in a couple of days, you'll see that sediment at the bottom. Mm-hmm. That's the adjuvant. And the adjuvant's job is to irritate your immune system. So when I give them a shot, I'm not there. It's not going to replicate. It's killed. It can't do anything but sit there. But the immune response by the body will react to that adjuvant just the same way your your hand reacts to a sliver. It will send antibodies there, and they will copy the DNA from the the uh, antigen, go back and form an immune response. That's why it tells you on that label you need to have two vaccines, two shots, excuse me. And the reason it needs two shots is the first one is a priming dose. And all you're doing is telling the immune system this is a foreigner, do something about it. When you give the second shot, now you get what's called an anamnestic response, a memory response. And that's when you see the jump in antibodies. The problem with killed vaccines, and I shouldn't say the problem, the concern is if you use a killed vaccine, you only give it one time, you really haven't developed a protective level. All you've done is prime the immune system. So think about it if you're doing it at branding time and you give them a killed vaccine for a virus and you don't come back in in four weeks, give them that second shot. You haven't done anything. You've just, all you've done is prime the immune system and you're hoping that four or five months later when you give them their weenie shot, that somehow they can build an immune response to that. With a modified live vaccine, what you're doing is you take the actual antigen and you grow it on a medium. So let's say for purposes of this discussion, this is way simplified, but if I took it, put it in a Petri dish and grow it, and then after a period of time, I take some and put it in a new Petri dish and I grow that, and then the same period of time, I do it again. Every time I move that down the chain, that's called a passage. And a passage basically weakens the vaccine. So every time it goes down the chain, it becomes weaker. And the goal is to create a vaccine that will mimic the disease, but won't create the disease. So this is where the trade secrets come in. Some companies use vaccines that are passaged many times so that they they feel like they're getting a good immune response, but there's very little chance of creating an adverse reaction. Some companies use vaccines that are passaged a little less and they create a, a stronger immune response, but they can't create the disease. What they're doing is tricking the immune system into thinking they've got the disease, so they build a stronger response. So back in the 80s and, and uh, late 70s, early 80s, even in the 90s, feedlots used to call what they call vaccine sweats. You've probably all heard of that term. Mm-hmm. You know, we vaccinate a load of cattle when we get them two days later, they're all got their, uh, got their heads down, they're kind of droopy, they don't feel good. Four days later, they're back feeling good again. Well, that vaccine sweat is mimicking a disease response. And it really was kind of a good thing in a way that it created that immune response, a strong immune response in the cattle. And so if the expectation was there, people didn't get excited about it. Or people got excited about it as if they weren't expecting it. And then it's like, well, I gave the vaccine, now all my cattle got their head on the ground. What's yeah. the problem? And that's that's where Modified Lives kind of took a knock for a while. Um, over the years, the the companies have become much better at 
fine tuning that passage program and also developing the combinations right so that they they didn't have things in them that might cause stronger immune responses than what they wanted. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. A modified live generally is only one shot. You know, if you look on the label, it'll say one shot annually. Now, now if we want to get into it here or not, the problem you get into is, is the dynamics of the herd. You know, if you take a hundred head of cattle and run them through, so you've sent them out and you got, you know, three guys on horses and two blue healers and they bring everything in, I got a pretty good chance not all 100 of those cattle are going to be just as happy as they could be when they go through the chute. Right. So there's a pretty good chance that some of those are going to have a high cortisol level. Their adrenaline is going to be pumped up. And so when they get to that level, you give them a vaccine and their their immune system just going to, it's going right on by. They're not taking mm. it. So you may have to come back in and hit them again. So this is why feedlots with long haul stress cattle, a lot of times we'll let them sit for 12 to 18 hours, even 24 hours, let them get some food in them, let them get some water in them, calm down, get off that truck excitement and the driving and new circumstances and all that. Let them find their herd mates, calves that they're used to being around, go get a drink of water, settle down a little bit. Then when they vaccinate them, they got a much better chance. But even then they'll come back in a week or 10 days or two weeks and vaccinate again with a modified live to catch those cattle that don't didn't get it the first time. I'm assuming that's why whenever whenever we ship ours on a VAC 45 type program, that they want you to give that shot two weeks after you give a shot at weaning and then you give one two weeks after just just to, because they may there may be a high level stress with weaning them at that point. But but I have a question that uh it's kind of along these lines. So let's say um, you know, you're calving and um you're given a modified live and that's in that cow system. Will that end up in that calf system when it's born? Some antigens do well with claustral transfer. So your scours vaccines, for instance, rotavirus, coronavirus, C and D, those things, they do well if you vaccinate the cow, you can actually vaccinate the calf through the claustrum. But the the viral antibodies don't do well in claustral transfer. They they just don't get much of it in there. Indeed. So we'll circle back to the calving aspect, but I, I, I want to touch on something else here. When we talk about weaning, when we talk about weaning, I know it's um, a highly recommended to do a, a pre-weaning uh, round of vaccines. And, and we try to do that here. What's the timetable on that look like? So that's first question. The second question is, actually it's three-parter. <laughs> So if we give that uh, that first shot two weeks ahead of weaning or a month ahead of weaning, when when is the recommended uh, booster given? And is it safe to give that booster at weaning? Okay, let me start with the first one as far as the time frame for pre-weaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally somewhere in that 30-day range, you know, two weeks to 30 days prior to is the best time, especially if they've seen it at branding too. You know, if I've given a, a good set of branding shots, and I don't mean just a seven-way shot, but I mean respiratories, the whole deal. And then when I give it to them again at pre-weaning, now I'm getting an anamnestic response, so I'm getting a strong response. And if I and, I, and now I've given them that chance to, at weaning. Now, that's always been the question, okay, do I do it again when, the day I pull them off the cow? And, and my, my professional opinion is, and my personal opinion is, <laughs> 
It depends. It depends on what your how your weaning goes. In other words, if you're weaning in the mountains and you're loading them on a semi and you're hauling them down to your home place two hours away, and the crowds up there are covered with dust and you got no water and they get on the truck and you now I unload them at the home place. I'm I'm probably gonna let them sit overnight at least, you know, get back to some semblance of normal. If I wean them in the pasture that joins my corrals and I walk them and their cows in there and cut the cows off and run them through, that's not a big deal. So it just depends on the stress level of the calves and how well, and you know, every operation has to evaluate that on their own. Yes. But it's safe to do it if the cow, but here again, if the, if the adrenaline level calves are not too stressed out, too worn out, uh, you're fine. But, uh, and I've done it both ways. I got another little question here. So, so let's say you give a modified live at branding and then mm-hmm. whenever you're weaning them, would it, would there be any benefit? I know it's like, there's lots of dollars and cents that goes into this. You know, you want to save a penny every chance you get. What if I gave it, what if, what if a man gave a killed vaccine and paired it with that modified live at, at branding? Is it safe to kind of overlap those types of vaccines? Or do you, if you give the modified live, you need to give the same modified live or, or, or what, what happens there? Okay. Can I back that question up just a little bit? Let's look at what the difference is in terms of the immune response between a killed vaccine and modified live. In your immune system, you have two sides. One of them is the antibody side, and we measure that by titers. So you probably all remember when we used to do Banks testing, right? You wanted mm-hmm. a Banks test a set of cows, what'd you do? You blood, got blood from the tail. You look for a titer for, for Banks. That's, a, that's, a, that's an immune response, and it's an antibody response, or what they call a humoral response. Killed vaccines stimulate the humoral side of the immune system. On the other side, you have a cell-mediated side. The cell-mediated side is the one that has the killer T cells that actually go in and actually kill viruses. So when you use a modified live, you stimulate both sides of that immune system. You have the cell-mediated side and the antibody side, both are stimulated. So if I use the modified live at Brandy and then I boost it with a killed vaccine pre-weaning, I'm only stimulating the antibody side of that. So I'm only getting half the protection. Uh, It doesn't, it's not gonna, from a safety standpoint, you're not gonna hurt the animal. From a protection standpoint, you're probably not giving him the best you can. Flip side of that is when it gets to a feed yard, I will almost guarantee he's gonna get a modified live when he gets to the feed yard. Yeah, yeah. So it's gonna have the protection from modified live at the feed yard. And you know, and sometimes we're given three rounds of shots on these things. So it's just, you know, I just was very curious as to know where I'm at as far as, you know, because if I can save 50 cents a shot and give a killed in the middle, and then two weeks later give the modified live and have the same effect, might as well. And I don't mean to criticize you, but I would say that's probably false economy. Gotcha. You're trying to save 50 cents, but I don't think you're saving it. Right. I think it'll it'll rear, it'll rear its head someplace else down the line. I got you. I got you. And that was my question. That was my question for sure. Yeah. I know Joe's got a question here, but but before we move on, I, I think Corbin hit on something here. When is enough enough? You know, can we over-vaccinate? I'm just going to interject here. Tom, you and I have a little experience here because at one point I was over-vaccinating and, and probably causing more harm than good. Could you touch on that and, and peel that back for us? And then, and then Joe has a question. All right. Let, let me just touch on it from a, 
you know, how did we get to where we were from where we were to where we are today? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't even have seven way. We had four way. <laughs> right. Wow. So so when we went from four way to eight way, a lot of people thought they doubled their health program, right? So <laughs> because clostridial disease has been around forever. I mean, you can go back and check diaries of early pioneers like Charlie Goodnight, who saw thousands of dead buffalo in the rivers from clostridial disease. I mean, it's been around forever. So that's the one vaccine that probably everybody is pretty close to using. They may term it as a black leg vaccine, and they'll say, I want seven-way or eight-way black leg, right? And that's fine. But how do we get from there to using black leg to IBR, PI3, BVD, BRSV, Vibrio, Lepto, and Haemophilus, and, you know, all these others? And what we found is that, you know, black leg is a sudden death disease. You don't treat black leg, you discover it, you find it. Right. And usually they're dead. Almost always they're dead. So you eliminate that out of the herd by vaccination. And then what do you find? Well, now we find there's other things that they're getting them after black life. Couldn't get them. Right. And so as we've started to go along, we've developed. The other thing is we're concentrating our cattle much more heavily than we ever used to. You know, the days of the open range and six to eight cows per section, pretty much over. So now we've got cows concentrated. We've got them drinking out of the same water troughs, drinking out of the same mud puddles. Uh, so lepto is going to be easily transferred. You know, it transfers through the urine. So I get a cow that wades out into a dirt tank and takes a leak. Next cow comes along, drinks out of that dirt tank. She's got the same lepto the first cow just shed. So we are concentrating some of those things. The other thing is we're putting a lot more stress on the cow. You know, you and I talked about that the other day. Grandpa would have been heavy with a, handy, happy with a 450-pound calf. And if he didn't wean a cow, calf didn't, excuse me, a cow didn't wean a calf every year, that didn't necessarily mean she got on the truck and went home. That means she probably stung around another year because I really wasn't sure if she had a calf or not. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I've worked on ranches where um, their, their preg checking program was we, at branding, we just culled out all the dry cows. Yeah. <laughs> You know, any cow didn't have a calf at branding time, she got she went to the truck and got loaded. I worked for another ranch and it was a well-run ranch, but their philosophy was we leave the bulls out nine months. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if she does, they were a primarily fall calving herd. If they didn't calve in the fall, that's okay. She'll catch in the spring. We'll sell that calf as yearly next year. <laughs> that was kind of, you know, and they had cows that floated back and forth. Sure. Between herds. Okay, there's not a lot of pressure on those cows. So if they have a, a minor hiccup, not a lot, of, not a big deal. Now take that back to where we are today. We would be tickled pink if we get our cows calving every on a 21 day cycle. But we expect our cows to do it in 45 days. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if you do the math, you take out gestation, uterine involution, you got basically about 42 days for a cow to get bred in a 365-day cycle. Every ounce of that, the nutrition, the genetics, the animal health have to be in line because any little thing can trip that cow up and go from, and I've had it happen. If my calving date was March 1st, I've had cows that calve March 5th. The next year they calve April 5th. The next year they calve April 15th. And the next year they're out of the herd. Yeah. Okay. So we put a lot of pressure on these cows. and so. As these diseases become 
small secondary things initially, they become major things. And so that's why we develop these programs. And, and a lot of it depends on where you're, where you're at in your area. So to say how much is enough is enough, it varies from ranch to ranch. There are some basics you have to have, IBR, PI3, BVD, BRSV. On the reproductive side, you have to have virbiolepto. You know, you can ask veterinarians in this area, when was the last time you doctored a cow with Vibrio? They'll probably tell you they can't remember. Right. But I just heard of a, an instance here not too far from where I live, two or three years ago, where they had heard it broke with Vibrio. So it's still there. You know, we're just doing a better job of keeping the, the threat level down. So, and you got to know where they're going. Like, you know, we see a lot of order buyers now buying calves out of Montana that are going to the Midwest. They're saying, we want homophilus in those cattle. Well, that's a problem they have there. We don't maybe necessarily have it here, but they want homophilus in the cattle before they get where they're going. So like we talked about on the airplane, sometime before they get there. <laughs> exactly. So, Tom, I heard you say, um, and, and I have to be careful, right? Fellow Cal Poly grad, and I'm one of these technical guys that wants to take the deep dive, and I appreciate a lot of the technical stuff you've shared. The average listener that we have maybe maybe is just getting started in the purebred business, is maybe new and, and naive to the way cattle run. I, I hear you rattle off figures that I hear all the time, and my customers have more. You say a cow, cow per section or two cows per, that's 640 acres, folks. I mean, we're talking big country. When you're talking container ships, I was there receiving those cattle a thousand at a time, 400 flyweights out of, out of Hawaii. Like we're talking big, real numbers of cattle here and a bigger, broader industry. I've noticed some of my commercial cattlemen, frankly, have, have the best vaccination protocols of anyone I'll see. And it's because they work closely with a consulting veterinarian or something like of, of the sort or professional like yourself. But let's just take it and dumb it back completely to the beginning. I heard you say consult with a veterinarian, but um, everybody wants to do good. And then you start looking over the fence and you see your guy sold a load of steers and he's back 45. So now I got to switch everything and I got to be back 45 because he happened to top the market. How do you distract those things and where do you start as a producer? You start with your threats. You mentioned that, but but maybe just real quick design a a quick and easy basic vaccine program for someone in a herd health program. Well, I appreciate that. Let me let me back up and just say to complement what you said, you know, there's three prongs to making this thing work. Uh, if everybody's seen a three-legged milk stool, I think everybody can paint an image of that, right? Those three legs are, are animal health, genetics, and nutrition. And so all three of those legs have to be balanced or you've got a serious problem. Uh, we had one of those milk stools when I was a kid. I can guarantee you they weren't good for what they were intended for. They make a lousy step ladder. <laughs> but the other thing is, if one leg is shorter than the other, they don't work at all. So in order for your animal health program to work, your nutrition has to be the best it can be, and your genetics have to be the best they can be. I can have the best animal health program in the world, but if I got lousy nutrition, they're not going to develop an immune response. So going back to a basic program, I would say, make sure you're getting the best nutrition into your cattle that you can, you know, because, you know, we know a lot of things, especially in the West, you know, copper drives the immune system. Cattle that are copper deficient don't develop an immune response. So I can spend a ton on vaccinations. If I don't have a good copper program. They're not going to make the response that they need. And the same thing's true with phosphorus on a reproductive standpoint. So to go back to your question, Joe, what's the basics? 
basically you want to program from the cow out. So I want to look at how do I vaccinate my cows? Personally, I think the best program you can do is when they're open. Because if I do it between calving and uh, breeding, now I've got an open cow. I have no dangers at all. I give her the best modified life program I can be on. And I've and I've actually also vaccinated her just prior to when I expect the biggest challenge to be at breeding time, right? So if I'm giving her Vibrio and Lepto and I've given her the IBR and the BVD vaccines at that point, she's got the best chance of warding off any problems that she may get during the breeding season, which is the critical 45 days for me, uh, is that breeding season. So I would look at working with your, you know, like you say, your animal health veterinarian, supplier, whoever your consultant, whoever you're working with, and get those programs lined out so that you're doing that for the open cow. That really helps you start out with that. Second thing, when the calf hits the ground, that's when I start looking at opportunities to help the calf. So I've worked with some ranches where they were using an intranasal product at birth. And the reason being intranasal products do not get whacked by maternal antibodies. You know, we talked about claustral transfer. So the calf gets up, he sucks, he's got claustral antibodies floating in his system and uh, from the milk of the, and the claustrum that the cow gave him. If I give him a shot, they're going to see that as foreign and probably try to fight it. If I give him an internasal, he can develop a respiratory uh, protection level that's right there in the internasal part where he breathes, but it doesn't necessarily become systemic, doesn't go into the system. So you may want to start with that. Then at branding time, then I would go into, if my cows are open at branding time, uh, when I'm going to process those calves or work those calves, my cows are open. I can give them a modified live at that branding time. I don't have to worry about any ill effects on the cow at all. Uh, that's the ideal program for me. Then when I come through at pre-weaning, I can vaccinate those calves. The cows are already been exposed. They're protected because they got their shots back at branding time. I don't have a lot of concerns. Now I'm on a very strong animal health program. Um, there are programs, there are products you can buy. Uh, there's a, there's some hybrid products out there uh, that are combinations of modified live and killed that are safe for any cow, any calf, any time. What would be an example of that, Tom? Uh, well, uh, Zoetis makes a product called Cattle Master. Okay. Okay, Cattle Master is a, the IBR and PI3 are temperature sensitive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they will not replicate across the placental barrier. They will not cause an abortion. Uh, the BBD is killed, but it is type 1 and type 2. And then the BRSV is modified live, but BRSV has no effect on, modified, on pregnant cows. So they're safe for any cow, any calf, any time. So if I'm buying a load of heifers that I want to put out into my herd, and I buy some heifers and I don't know their vaccination background, I can use a hybrid product and I'm safe and I'm at least I'm starting a program where they're developing some level of protection. And then when they get to back to the next normal cycle, I can put them in with my regular herd pro program with no complications. That's very interesting, Tom. So in uh, description or explanation there, your answer, 
Uh, you, you hit upon one thing that uh, I think a lot of our listeners need to hear. When they're given those pre-breeding shots, I mean, they nearly always say, give it 30 days, 45 days ahead of breeding. Let's give that a little emphasis and, and open that up a little bit. Why is that important? Because I, I'll tell you, I have a lot of folks that will call me and they said, hey, we're throwing in cedars this Saturday. Can I give my pre-breeding shots then? And I say, if, if the label says no, don't. Yeah, and the issue is with the IBR. Even if they're on a modified live program, that's why it'll tell you to do it 30 to 60 days in advance of, a, of an implanting program, is to let those cows cycle through one time so that you don't cause a lysis of that follicle and then create a, a delay. So uh, that's the purpose of that. And so you're absolutely spot on. You know, you, you want to give them at least one heat cycle before you before you turn them out. That includes a, like a black leg and a virus protector and then a worm or two. Would you, would you wait on all of those? Or is there one you could give that, that wouldn't affect anything? Well, you know, the wormers are in the, in the black leg are going to have a, a lower level of effect on the reproductive tract. And the IBR and BVD both have a reproductive side too. They're a respiratory disease, but they're also a reproductive disease. And so an IBR can actually create that in the system. So, you know, there's been all kinds of testing. Say it's safe for pregnant cows. Go ahead and give it to them if they've had two modified lives in their life before you give it to them. So, if, you know, if a heifer got it as a calf, she got it at Bang's vaccination time, for instance, got it again pre-breeding, and then I want to give it to her the next fall, I'm not going to create a problem for her probably, but the, if I'm going to do it just before I put in cedars, I would rather she had at least one heat cycle to go through Yeah, to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, to make her succeed. Right. There, there's a, a myriad of vaccines out there, and uh, I've already disclosed that I'm probably one that over-vaccinates. And, and I know you and I have had this discussion many times. I've had it with my vet about... Um, <sighs> You know, we get these cattle in a chute. We want to maximize our opportunity to to get whatever vaccine we want into this animal. Is there a good rule of thumb on how many vaccines are safe to give at once? Yeah, and it has to do with the gram negative vaccines. And and Joe, I don't want to get too tactical here, okay? <laughs> no, no, I was I was following up with that one, Tom, because I have commercial <laughs> guys that pull Vibrio and Lepto out that went to a seminar yeah. one time and said we should do this and it works for them. So I'm excited to hear you unpack that. Yeah. The gram-negative vaccines, which is primarily your Bactrans, which is Lepto, Vibrio, too many gram-negatives can create an anaphylactic reaction or an allergic reaction in a cow, in a calf or a cow. And so when you look at almost all the Bactrans, Vibrio, Lepto, um, Pink Eye, Wart vaccines, there's a bunch of them that are gram negative. And, and, and technically, not to get in the weeds, that has to do with all that has to do with is when they stain them, do they come out positive or negative? And that's the gram negatives. If you get too many of them, you get a, a, a reaction in the calves. So you want to keep your gram negatives in purebred cattle. We used to say no more than two gram negatives at one time. In commercial cattle, you could do you can do three or four, uh, primarily because of the hybrid 
aspect of most commercial cows. When you start fine-tuning the genetics, you start setting yourself up for other diseases, right? And more susceptibility. It's like a purebred dog versus a mongrel. You know, I mean, some dogs I've had, you couldn't kill them. And the other one, you look at them, they fall over. So it's the same idea. And so gram-negative is where your concern comes. Clostridial, some veterinarians will tell you gram-negative. Even though a, a clostridial is a gram-positive, they will tell you it hits the immune system like a gram-negative. Mm-hmm. You count it. And some of them say at least it counts as a half. So are you given two and a half if you give them black leg and vibrio and lepto? <clears throat> you know, or some will say that's three. You, you kind of got to work that out with how sensitive your cattle are. But that's that's the that's the deciding factor. And, you know, we've made vaccines. They're out there now. You can get a, you know, you can get a, a vaccine now that's a 10, got 10 antigens in it. You know, it's got IBR, PI3, BVD, BRSV type 1 and type 2. It's got Virbio, Lepto, uh, five-way Lepto. You know, I mean, you get you can get out there where you're giving them a lot of stuff. And as long as you don't overload the gram negatives, they can they can handle that. But get too many gram negatives, you're going to need some epinephrine. <laughs> you, you and I, I think, have talked about this before on how few people actually have epinephrine shoot side come vaccination time and uh, how important that is. So what's been your experience over the years uh, working with producers, feedlots? Is that a common practice that they have epinephrine handy? Well, for everybody that's ever had a bad experience, it's become a common practice. (laughs) (laughs) It's usually a little late, right? But I mean, my son used to manage, he was the cow manager here on a big ranch here in Montana runs two or 3,000 cows. And I asked him one day, I said, you know, how many times do you guys haul epinephrine to your brandons? You know, he said, well, yeah. <laughs> when we think of it, you know, it was, was kind of the answer. And that's usually what most people do. But the reality is epinephrine is a very inexpensive expensive product. It'll tell you on every product, everybody's label, it'll tell you to have it handy. That's not the words they use, but it'll say, you know, that's what you administer if there's an allergic reaction. And so there's always that possibility. And, and if you're dealing with purebred cattle, now you're dealing with calves that aren't worth just $1,000 a piece, but probably several thousand dollars. Uh, you know, that's a very inexpensive product to have shoot side. The problem that I've seen with most people is they have it in their refrigerator back at the house. Okay. By the time I, I get my wife or my daughter to jump in the pickup and drive all the way back to the house and get it, and then rattle all the way back out to where we're working, there's a pretty good chance that that epinephrine is not going to have it. We're not setting the epinephrine up to succeed because the calf's already dead, yeah, or at least exactly. so far along, you know. Or I back up the gooseneck and throw him in, you know, get him into a trailer and then haul him into the vet. You know, that two hours is pretty critical. So it's it's worth the chance to have It's worth it to have the epinephrine there. Circle March 20th on your calendar for the Herd Builder Bull Cell in Othello, Washington. From the source for easy fleshing, maternal genetics in the Northwest, JR Ranch and Sackman Cattle Company will be offering 110 strong-aged Angus bulls built for the real-world cattlemen. Both breeding programs focus on cattle which thrive in low-input environments. Function, fertility, and efficiency are not just catchphrases at JR Ranch and Sackman Cattle Company. They are bred into each and every bull. Sires such as OCC Double Wide, McCumber Zodiac, Rainfall, Bravo, 
stellar, Coleman Marshall, and renowned will have sons represented in this offering. Backed by the most customer-friendly warranty in the bull business, these bulls have been developed for longevity and are ready to go to work in big country. Along with marketing assistance for steers and quality replacement heifers, these two great outfits offer free delivery and volume discounts, along with a satisfaction guarantee for online and absentee buyers. For those unable to attend, the sale will be broadcast live on liveauctions.tv. Plan now to join us on March 20th at JR Ranch in Othello, Washington. In the meantime, go to jrranch.net or sackmancattle.com or call Jeff Schmidt at 509-750-8671 for more information and to request a catalog. Tom, I got another one for you, another one of these simple ones. Go over aseptic and antiseptic technique and uh, how people should handle their their automatic repeated syringes and cleaning them. And I know some people want to get out the Dawn dish soap, right? Uh, maybe unpack that a little bit. Okay. Hey, have yeah. you been spying on me? What? Yeah, he has. <laughs> he has. <laughs> well, let me just, let me back that up. You know, in, in, in the 1990s, Smith, Klein Beach had launched a program called Handle with Care. And it was the first uh, industry BQA-supported program. The NCBA was pushing BQA. SmithKline Peacham got behind it. And so I ran with that, went to start training at the feedlots in Arizona and Southern California, Imperial Valley, where we trained all the feed yard help. And we had Spanish interpreters, the whole deal, on the, just exactly that. Because what happens is most people would say, well, I want to make sure everything's clean. So I'm going to take my my needles, my guns, everything. I'm going to run them through the dishwasher practically, right? Mm-hmm. And what you yep. end up with is soap residue. And soap residue and modified lives do not go well together. And so and neither is alcohol. And so what happens is now I'm taking a modified live vaccine and I'm running it through basically a killing field before it gets into the animal. And so you weaken the immune response dramatically because it doesn't have a chance to replicate. And so what we train people to do is you wash them with hot water and let them dry. And then you're, then you're good. So from an aseptic standpoint, yeah, I've cleaned it. I've washed it. I've rinsed it. I didn't use any soap. I just washed it with hot water. The other thing you want to do is make sure you keep your guns and your needles your needles, you need to change every 10 to 15 head. I know that everybody looks at that and says, well, why would I do that? You know, I, I can remember as a kid, the guys used to brag about, this is the same needle I've used for the last three brandings. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the needles are as well made now, or maybe our cows are just a little bit wiggly, more wiggly. Yeah. But, uh, I can't make it that many. I bent it on the chute, but I straightened it out and it's still working. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Jeez. Well, you go back in and I've seen the carcass data where we've peeled the hides off those cattle, you can see the needle tracks. Sure. Where that burr was and 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 what it, what damage it created to the carcass. But the other wow. thing is, as far as the changing your needles, if I do have a problem and I change them every 10 head, I can't, I'm not going to spread that problem more than nine, nine more cattle. Right. Okay. So, you know, to, to Corbin's point, needles are pretty expensive now. They're not built like they used to be. And you can, you know, you can afford to transfer those. And the other thing is, 
on your guns, if you have a gun that I use for modified lives, that's I label that an MLV gun. Yep. And if I have a gun that I use for clostridial or blackleg, I label that my my clostridial gun. And if I have another one that I use for reproductive vaccines, I label that gun. So when I put them in my my working box, they go where they belong. So there's not a chance that somebody's going to grab the wrong needle or the wrong gun. And and you you know that I I clearly delineate which gun is going to be used at. So that gun that's a modified live gun always sees the same products and always sees the same process. Clean with hot water, let out the air dry, put back together, mm-hmm. and then he's ready to go. Tom, how many times have you been to a branding or or vaccinating cows where you grab the most inexperienced person and you either have them bringing cattle to the shoot or you have them vaccinating calves? Yeah. And I always say, man, if I'm the <laughs> boss, I either want to be setting up the shoot. I could train anybody to run a shoot, right? but I want to be given the vaccines and I want to be setting the tone for the day. You know, that's exactly right. It used to be that, that you know, the little kids got, got that job. Right. So what do you do? Well, you, I, you just fill syringes for me or you get to run this gun, you know, and we didn't do a lot of training. I mean, let's face it. I'm maybe you guys aren't, but I'm old enough to remember when everything was given in the butt. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason was is the biggest, flattest muscle that went by. Right. Yep. And so it didn't matter if you were roping them and dragging them or if you were running them through a calf table or you just grabbing them out of the herd and dragging them out and sitting on them. It was easy to get to the butt. So we gave all the shots in the hip. So you could tell anybody, just take this needle and jab it in there, clear to the hub, push the button and come back out and you're good. <laughs> it was kind of a simple training process, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the OJT was pretty easy. But as we got into the BQA and started pulling hides off those cattle, who actually started that whole BQA thing was the stake cutters. Yeah. In the 1980s and 1990s, the stake cutters revolted and said, you've got to come back with a better program. Because when we cut into a stake, let's say around in the rounds, and we're cutting around, and all of a sudden we hit a great big abscess, we lose the stakes on both sides, plus the stake it's in, plus we have to shut the, t- the kill floor or the table down. We have to disinfect everything. You know, you got to get it into a better spot. So as we move to above the shoulder into the neck, what we found is any problems that's up there are evident when they take the hide off. And generally, it's an easy trim. We don't lose valuable meat. It's a much better process. So absolutely, Joe, to your point, take the time to train those people who are doing it. How do I effectively give a sub-Q shot? What's the best way to do that? What's the best way to give a an intermuscular shot if I have to give it intermuscular? What's the best way to do it? And the same thing with the porons. You know, I've seen that where people were using uh, their dewormer. It was a back pour. And some of it was, you know, more of a gun on the shoot than gun on the cows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how do, you, how do you train them to get that from the shoulder to the tail head in that four or six inch window all the way down, you know, which is ideal. So how do you do that? You know, and those are things that are worth training because it makes a difference. Absolutely. No, I, I, I don't think there's any substitute. You can have the best vaccines, the best vaccination schedule in the world. But if you've got cowboys uh, giving these shots, doing the porons that don't have the specifics, the specific training, then it means nothing. I, th- I think that's a very valuable point you brought up, Tom. 
Tom, I want, I want to shift gears just a little bit. Uh, so we've talked a lot about vaccines. Actually, I have two, two areas that I want to cover, and I know the guys probably have a couple more things as well. But So we've got new regulation coming out this year um, on antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Basically, any of the antibiotics that we've been using in this industry, we've got to have a vet script for. Yep. So I guess, number one, what's your feelings on that? And then number two, if you had to say, hey, I've got the medicine cabinet in my vet shack, I need to keep two antibiotics there, which two would those be? Well, let me start with the first part. This started with what was called the VFD or the Veterinary Feed Directive. And uh, a few years ago, when this first came out, they gave the industry wide knowledge that it was coming because it was it was common practice to be able to buy feed-grade antibiotics like tetracyclines, for instance. And you could go to the feed store and buy that or buy feed that had it in it without a label, or excuse me, without a, a listing from your veterinarian and feed it according to label directions and there was no regulation on it. Well, given the environmental regulate or the environment that we live in today, there's not a lot of people in Congress who are going to say, I'm really happy that people don't have any control over the fact how much antibiotics they're feeding, right? <laughs> so this this kind of went way off the rails. But what ended up with was enough pressure was put on Congress that they passed the VFD or the Veterinary Feed Directive, which said any feed grade antibiotics had to be uh, had to have a veterinarian write at a prescription for that for a specific group of cattle for a specific time frame. So when this came out, another guy worked with another friend of mine who's in the nutrition business. We put together what was called the, the Intermountain Vet Conference, and we would bring veterinarians together with nutritionists and feed companies. And we did it for three years before the directive actually hit to try to get them to get used to working together. So the veterinarian could say, okay, I think this set of cattle need a, you know, a round of tetracycline or oreomycin or whatever it might be. And another, and the feed company would say, well, we can't build that, or we can build it. And and then the, the nutritionists would say, okay, but this is where we need to use it. So we got trying to get them used to working with each other because they all had to combine. And that was kind of a foreign concept for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So as we got that working, what we found was they weren't any more familiar with it than we were as far as what their actual regulations meant. There was a lot of adoption that took place. It's bled over into injectable antibiotics now. You know, LA-200 just came off, for instance, and that includes all the oxytetracyclines, the Pioneer product and the generics. So what you used to be able to do is go into the feed store or the supply store and buy a bottle of LA-200 and nobody really cared much about it. Now you have to have a prescription to buy, to buy that. It's odd that they think this is bleeding over into the food supply that is going to have an effect on people because oxytetracycline is not used in any very, very lightly in humans other than skin conditions and things like that. You know, we've advanced to much more effective drugs, but um, I understand the process behind it. Now, to your second question, for me, if I was going to keep something in my cabinet uh, and, and assuming I had script, I would probably keep an oxytetracycline because there's a lot of things that are still susceptible to that. And then I would probably keep uh, telithromycin 
which is, you know, Draxin or one of the forms of that, uh, and possibly exceed the safety of fears, because those three things, now I've got all three different ranges of, I got a pretty broad spectrum of arsenal there that I can use and uh, for different things, because different things have different susceptibilities. You taught me well, because that's exactly what I've got in my cabinet. So I'm, I'm happy with your answer. <laughs> And I think you just touched that, like if somebody circles the centralized topics that you brought out is, is being a sniper to what you need, like really honing in what you need for your program and going after that in your scenarios. Because I know, frankly, right now, when it comes to some diseases or, or issues that cattle might have, it's what can fit in a dart gun, right? Absolutely. Maybe that is what will save that animal. But maybe there are different ways that we could more specifically doctor cattle with on-label use and just making sure that we're doing the most effective thing that we can um, because we we all want to protect our investments. That's what it's about, right? And uh, but, but definitely that's one thing I've had to go back and 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 how do you recommend that that producers go about avoiding any sort of just in herd resistance issues? Or do they exist? Well, I think they can, but it's, I haven't seen it, you know, in my 20, 30 plus years experience. In herd resistance has really not been a big, big issue. We turn cattle over fast enough that they don't they don't really develop a lot of resistance to it. Now you can have some bugs in your herd that maybe are resistant to a drug where some cows will get that and you'll have to go back through and maybe switch up. Okay. So uh, one of the things I, I strongly recommend is if if you give them a shot of of a pretty heavy duty, a pretty heavy duty antibiotic, let's say Clarithromycin, for instance, and they don't respond. Don't switch to another clarithromycin and use that, because you're not you're not you're not helping yourself any. You know, if 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 they don't get it with the clarithromycin, then go to a ceftiofur. And if that doesn't work, then try something different. You know, I'm I'm seeing it personally right now. I got an infection in my foot. Doctor tried an antibiotic. We thought it worked. It ran out of the course. Infection came back. She said, "We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna put you on an IV antibiotic." So she put me on an IV antibiotic, completely different, and an oral antibiotic at the same time. She said, "We're gonna blast this thing out of your foot." <laughs> Basically, is what she's trying to do. So do the same thing. I mean, if something doesn't work, or you're, you know, and your veterinarian doesn't feel like you're getting the response you need, now does it take time to be patient? Yeah, some things don't happen overnight, and, and that's where I think most people run into is a patience problem. You know, they see a steer that's sick or a calf that's sick. They doctor it. They come out at eight o'clock the next morning and the calf still looks sick. Well, it didn't work. Well, you know, give it time. I mean, the immune system yeah. is slow to work anyway. So it, it takes a little time and that's the biggest problem. What's a good time frame for, for like, like, let's just say a calf that's got some, some sort of respiratory deal and you give it Drax and what's a good time frame on that? Well, I'm going to plead ignorance here from the standpoint. I can't remember exactly. Drax actually is gets into the lungs really fairly quickly. I can't remember the exact time frame, but it's it's not hours, it's minutes, you know. Okay. Within, oh, wow. within an hour or two, it's actually in the lung tissue. But it may not you may not see the results of that. Right. For, for a couple of days, but it's in there doing its job. You know, a lot of times people will couple that with uh banamine. Mm -hmm. Uh because that's like an aspirin tablet, right? It makes the calf feel better. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. So a lot of times people say, well, I, you know, it doesn't feel better. Well, as long as I'm getting an immune response or a, or a response to the disease, I should say, I'm happy with that. So, yeah, if I don't see anything in 
three days, then I'm probably going to go back in and. Yeah. Well, let's say you've got uh, you know, 400 pound calf and you've got 10 CC darts. What if you, this is just, I I'm curious here. If, if you had 10 CC darts and you put five Drax and then five Banamine in there, would that work or should you have two five CC darts? I'm not qualified to answer that question. I've never <laughs> used a dart gun. I know that I've mixed them together and it's worked, but I don't know like the technical answer as to whether or not I should be doing that or not. Well, the label answer is no. You know, right. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I'm not qualified to, I don't have any experience with it, so I'm not going to say anything. My medicine rep won't answer that question for me either. <laughs> Tom know. and I are both old school. I, I don't think either one of us has ever, ever darted one. So I know a lot of people have gone to dart guns because they're having trouble finding cowboys that can rope. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's hard to find help. And there are products we didn't, we didn't talk about. Uh, I've recommended a product to, or talk to their veterinarian about a product. Um, people having trouble finding the IV for banamine. So use a poron banamine or use Resflor Gold, for example, to get your banamine in. And that's what some veterinarians out here have done. It's a lot easier to train that way. But I do know that out here, at least, we've, we've seen uh, some cases of off-label use of specifically banamine in which um, it, it's definitely not recommended for a purpose too. Yeah. Tom, I have one topic I, I want us to cover before we, we, we move on to uh, the next segment. And that, that has to do with biosecurity. Our audience is very diverse. We, we have a lot of purebred producers that have small herds or they're, they're beginning herds. And so it's, it's, you know, they'll go out and they'll buy a cow from a neighbor or, or somebody across the country or maybe a herd bull. And so they get that animal home and, and let's assume that they've got a good herd health uh, program. Their herds mainly closed. What's the best protocol for bringing that animal into the herd? Number one, and number two, getting it up to speed on the vaccinations. Well, assuming that are we talking about like a set of heifers or bred cows or. <clears throat> yeah, just anything. I mean, uh, I mean, you've, you've bought uh, bread cows from us. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're taking that home and, and going to dump it in with your bread cows eventually, what's the best protocol there? A couple of things you can do. One is if I'm receiving cattle, and let's say I buy a load of bread heifers, for instance, in this case, they're already bred. I'm bringing them home. I'm excited about them. I've got a pretty good idea what kind of program they're on, uh, but I'm not real familiar with what they're doing. Um, I would let those cattle sit for a, at least 10 days to two weeks, maybe feed them in a corral by themselves, get them a little used to the surroundings, the water, everything else, uh, and, and then do whatever I was going to do with them, okay? Put them out with the rest of the bread heifers or put them in a field by themselves or whatever I was going to do. But I would give myself every chance to let them succeed, make sure there wasn't something incubating, you know, you got to remember, it takes about 14 days for a disease to show up after they've been exposed. Right. So if I'm incubating the disease, I want to give them a chance to show me that before I put them out with the rest of my cows. Mm -hmm. As far as the vaccination programs, you got two options. One is to go through and and actually vaccinate those cattle with a hybrid vaccine like we talked about that's safe for any cow, any calf, any time. I could give them that if I'm concerned about where they're, I don't know what they've got. At least I've given them 
something if it's far enough away from calving that I'm comfortable. If I'm right up on more close to, they're close to calving, I might want to start their scours vaccines and maybe not worry about the virals yet. And then after they calve, put them in the regular open cow scenario. But I would give those cows a couple of weeks to to manifest anything and make sure that I knew what was going on. You bet. Um, the one thing I would say, and I, I, I'm adamant about this, if you lose a calf, do not go to the sale and buy a calf and bring it home and graft it on the cow that lost the calf. I've done that. It was bad. You know, I had a veterinarian friend tell me one time, he said, he told a client of his, he said, next time you feel like doing that, just go get your deer rifle and go out to shoot the best calf you've got. Mm. And then just keep shooting until you're tired of shooting. And then then don't that'll teach you not to go buy those calves. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, indeed. And, uh, you know, we've all seen those wrecks, but people still do it. And, you know, or they go to the neighbor's dairy and pick up a Holstein calf and then bring it home. And you're bringing all kinds of stuff that was over there that your cows have never seen. Yeah, you bet. And you're just setting yourself up for problems. So from a biosecurity standpoint, I'd say that's job one is keep the baby calves off, you know. Uh, now, it's one thing if you have a twin and you graft the twin out of your own herd, that's fine. There's nothing wrong. But if you go to the neighbors and, and buy a calf and bring it back, probably a little less risky. But if you go to the sale yard, you don't know what you got. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Tom, we've covered a lot of ground in this animal health segment. And uh, we certainly appreciate uh, all the expertise and experience you brought to us. Um, and I, I think, man, we could go on forever. <laughs> but but you've been generous with your time so uh we're going to take a short break when we come back we're going to talk to tom brooks again but we're going to talk about finance are you looking to market your semen or embryos introducing genebrokers.com the industry's first true breeder to breeder online marketplace whether you're cleaning out your tank or selling semen on your special herd sire, GeneBrokers.com provides a platform to showcase your genetics to breeders from around the globe. Our intuitive portal allows you to create listings, monitor inventory levels, and customize your storefront. With GeneBrokers.com, there are no listing fees and a modest 10% transaction fee due at the time of sale. For those looking to purchase genetics online, GeneBrokers.com offers dynamic sorting functions to help you narrow your search to find exactly what you're looking for. Each transaction is fast, easy, and secure. All sales are backed by GeneBrokers' quality guarantee policy for smooth, hassle-free transactions. To make your next purchase or to begin marketing your genetics, visit GeneBrokers.com, where you'll find genetics at the speed of commerce. So, Tom, in, in our introduction, I mentioned that you're an author. Uh, that's very exciting. And uh, you, so Tom, you've got a book coming out very, very soon. Why don't you tell us uh, the title of that book and what it pertains to? Well, uh, before you say I'm an author, let's just say I wrote a book. I don't know if I qualify as an author. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called Paid in Full, A Guide to Financial Freedom. And uh, it's based on my experiences in the early 2000s, I left the animal health world uh, and the corporate world and uh, started to expand our ranching operation. And I took a job as a financial planner uh, here in, in the Great Falls area, uh, primarily to do agricultural financial planning for estate planning for people that had concerns about how do we transfer the ranch to the next generation without creating a tax problem 
for them and that sort of thing. And so I spent quite a bit of time doing that, but I also expanded our ranching operation. And uh, when we were, things were going well until we hit 2008. And uh, and I had expanded with way too much credit, way too much debt, and because credit was easy. And I had a good reputation with my bank. I mean, many times I called them up and said, I want to buy a load of cattle, I want to buy these cows, or I want to buy this bunch of cattle or whatever. Yeah, just go ahead and do it. And you can come by and sign the papers later. You know, write the check, we'll cover it. And, you know, well, in 2008, that all came to a screeching halt. And, uh, but when it all came tight, um, we had also leased a couple of ranches and put ourselves in a spot where uh, things didn't work out. You know, we had a bad year where we took about $1,000 less per head for our bulls than we did the year before. Um, our cow-calf commercial operation, the calves were, you know, barely above our profit or our cost. We were on kind of razor-thin mod. And then fuel went up to like it is now, and fertilizers went up, everything went up. So, you know, we were farming a couple thousand acres of irrigated ground, three or 4,000 range ground. You know, it, it was a house, of, basically a house of cards. So when the deal went down and all came tight, we made a decision we weren't going to declare bankruptcy. We weren't going to we weren't going to leave anybody else with this mess. So we were going to try to figure out how to get out of it. So uh, we sold as much as we could. Um, basically, I took a job with a nutrition company uh, in Oregon, and we moved into a, our recreational vehicle. We moved into a, a small fifth wheel trailer. And so if you want to find out if you love somebody, move into an aluminum tube in the rain. <laughs> I think I know the answer in my case. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got less than 400 square feet and you and your wife and a border collie, right? So it becomes a, it becomes a little bit tenuous as how long you can do that. Well, this was not going to be a short deal. We were down about $480,000 and we paid it off in four and a half years. Wow. And so what we did was, that's what this book is about, is A, how do you prevent this from happening? But also, if it does happen, how do you get out of it? Um, and so we just we just took a lot of techniques. Some of them we got from Dave Ramsey, some of them we got from religious leaders, some of them we got from other books that we read. Some of them I got from my mother and dad, you know, who were children of the Depression. And uh, we just put all those things to work. And both of us, and it takes both of you, decided that this wasn't going to whip us. We were going to figure out how to get out of it. And, uh, you know, in four and a half years, we not only paid off the debt, I saved enough money to put a down payment down on a house in Idaho Falls. Went back to work for Zoetis, lived in a house in Idaho Falls. We owned, we bought some land up here. We paid cash for that. Awesome. We built, built a house up here, you know. And so now we're, you know, we haven't paid any interest in years and other than a little bit on our mortgage. Um, and so that's kind of what the book's about, you know, not only how do you do it, but what are some steps you can take to help yourself get through it? One of the things I think you said there that kind of just glanced over as a, you know, you got to be together. And I don't think we can undersell that at all. You know, a lot of a lot of the people that listen to our podcast are going to be young couples. And, and I think that transparency within that marriage and just being on the same page is going to, you know, and I don't know if you touched on that on your book, but I just I just have been thinking about my situation and, and how how us being transparent with one another has helped our situation so much more. Well, I, I give all the credit to my wife because, you know, I don't mention this in the book, but I'll give you an example. You know, we when things got tough, we had a three-year lease on one ranch, and we were going into our last year, and we realized that 
we probably needed an exit strategy, not an extension. Mm-hmm. So when I went to the bank and said, look, we got to develop an exit strategy. I mean, I could see when this is circling the drain. And uh, I mean, I went to Cal Poly, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a finance major, but I know that, you know, if you're taking a thousand dollars less for your bulls and, and you're breaking even on your calves and your inputs go up by double, that's not a recipe for success. So, you know, what do you, what do you recommend? Now we had a great relationship with our bank. You know, we, we, we always communicated with them. We did well. And he, and he was really good. Our lender was really good about it. You know, he said, let's, let's, let's figure out a way. And so we developed an exit strategy. So the last year they were willing to finance us, even knowing that this was going to be the last year we're going to have, actually we had three ranches leased. All of them were going to be up that year. So it worked out that at the end of that year, we were going to be done. I started looking for work out of town. I had to move from Montana to Portland. My wife had to stay home and bush hog all the pastures and my sons were irrigating in the evenings after work. And, you know, we had a lot of family that was helping us. And we sold we sold some pairs out as we could and so forth. Sold some of our registered cows to other people. And we had a handful left over. But the idea being, we developed a strategy and my wife was behind 100%. She said, you know, you go do what you got to do. I'm going to do what I got to do. I'll get there as soon as I can. And Work so, together. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I mean, when, you know, it's interesting when you get a phone call on a Saturday at two o'clock in the afternoon saying, I'm out in the middle of this field and the tractor's overheated. What do I do now? <laughs> you know, and you're 500 miles away and it's like, well, I think I know where you're at. I know which field you're in and I think I know, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> you got to rely on somebody else. Right. So. So Tom, I, I got another question for you. So what you're, you're 480 grand in the hole. At what point do you say, man, I got to do something. I got to, this is not working out. I've got to, I've got to change something to make life better for me and everyone around me. I think for us, it was when, um, when we went in to last get financed, the bank didn't own a note on our, on our place. They just had financed our cattle operations and our, our operating loans. So when I went in to get refinanced for my operating loan, they said, you know, the way this economy is and the way the bank inspectors are right now and other things, we got to have more collateral. And I said, well, I, I don't blame you for that. I can understand that, but what's your idea? And they said, we want to take a second on your place. And we were in a spot and all of us knew it. The banker knew it. We knew it. My wife knew it. I think the border collie knew it. <laughs> You know, this wasn't going to get any better. And so we said, well, we were really hesitant to do it. We didn't want to do it, but we told them, okay. Turned out that was the best blessing we ever did. Because then they financed for that year, but then when that year was over and we'd sold as many of the, you know, we sold the cattle off, we got all that taken care of. We were still down in the six figures. And the bank came to us and, and I said, I, I don't know what to do. I'm working in Oregon. Karen's at home trying to sell the place. You remember the recession was on. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to buy it. The people who had enough money to buy it, it wasn't probably big enough for what they wanted. The people who wanted it, bank wouldn't finance them. The money. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had a, you know, I had a big open arena on the place. I had a nice home. You know, it was a nice place. So I told the banker, I said, I don't know what to do, you know. He said, well, if you declare bankruptcy, I can't talk to you anymore because the lawyers will handle it. 
So, and I didn't want that to happen. He didn't want it to happen. We were good friends and so on. I said, well, I don't want that to happen. And he said, let me think about it. This is going to seem strange, but two weeks later, the bank called me and said, what if we bought your place outright? And at the time I said, I, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, we want to buy your place. And I said, well, you can't take it as a deed in lieu of foreclosure because you don't have the first. He said, no, that's not what we mean. We want to buy it on a warranty deed. We'll buy it outright. We'll pay off your note. We'll take your equity, put it towards your note against us. And the balance of your note will finance for 10 years at 5% interest on an unsecured note. How do you feel about that? You know, now my my son, oldest son, is an appraiser for, for an ag lender here, in a national ag lender in town. I called him. I said, you know the banker and you know ag lending. You know appraising. Call this guy up and call Jim up and ask him if that's right. Because maybe I just heard what I wanted to hear. And him and Jim were a good friend. He called him up and said, no, he wants to buy it on a warranty deed. Well, I know that they're, I'm not that altruistic. I mean, I know that they had their own motives. They weren't in a first. If 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 we'd have turned it back and said, we're out of here, or here's the keys, we're out of here. The original bank could have sold it for what they needed to cover their mortgage and left them high and dry. So I, I know how that works, but they didn't have to do it either. You know, this is a local lender and local bank. They could have walked away from us and still survived. You bet. But uh, they didn't. And I think a lot of it was because we had that relationship of communication with them. Absolutely. And this was at a time when some of the people were, I mean, there was people in this valley I know that were hiding pickup trucks behind haystacks and tractors and barns because there was foreclosures going on, right? Sure. And we were out there up front saying, this is it, you know, what do you want us to do? And they were good about it. And so they they gave me that note for um, 10 years at 5% interest, and I paid it off in three years. Mm. Incredible. Um, I got a question for you. You're a financial planner, um, and I'm excited to hear more about this book, and I hope David takes it that direction here in a second. So we aren't going to provide financial advice. This is our disclaimer, right? I should have had a read-through that we should have read. But <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Especially with an appetite for passive income in my mine and Corbin's generation. And then also, you know, people that uh, you know, there's day trading, there's all sorts of stuff. There's people way overextended between their what what a lot of folks would say their means are. Do you see a lot of those same indicators that we would have saw about 15 years ago kind of going on right now? Well, absolutely. I just read a report yesterday that the credit card debt in the United States is skyrocketed. But more importantly, the uh, default rate at credit cards is is doubled in the last two months. Wow. So it sounds like your book's timely. Where do we get it? <laughs> there, there are no promo codes, guys. I mean, it's like I, I found out about this book 45 minutes ago, but I'm primed up wanting to order it. So, Tom, where can we get your book? What's the name? Is it available yet? Maybe go, go into some of those details for us. Well, the book is titled Paid in Full, A Guide to Financial Freedom. It's uh, being published by Covenant Books. It'll be available uh, probably the end of March. Um, they've got it copyrighted now. I just approved the the text uh, and the way they laid the pages out and so forth, and they're working on the cover right now. It should be available probably end of March, first part of April. Do you have a website or social media or anything that's going to be pre-selling that book? Because this thing's going to come out about when we're going to come out Friday, which would be like this fourth, fifth of February, we're going to have a whole bunch of listeners who are going to be intrigued by this. I'm sure. 
Is there some way you can keep your foot in the door knowing what's happening with paid in full? Well, it'll be in it'll be on Amazon, it'll be at Barnes and Noble, it'll be available online at any of those locations. I am actually trying to I haven't got it done yet, but I'm starting to a series of YouTube videos on just uh finances. Mm, cool. Cool. Awesome. I used to have a radio program here in Great Falls called uh The Money Corner. Uh, when I was a financial advisor and I did, you know, same kind of thing. How, how do you set your ranch up or how do you set your retirement up or how do you, what do, what do investments look like? What's insurance look like? And so I'm going to start those up again on a YouTube channel here where I'll take a, a topic like insurance and say, okay, what's insurance used for? You know, life insurance has three reasons, right? One is to insure against catastrophic loss. You know, I don't want to die and leave my wife home with, five kids and no way to educate the kids, right? So so that's it. That's that's catastrophic loss. The other one is to, is to protect an estate. Okay, so I want life insurance trans, transfers tax-free. So if I want my kids to inherit the ranch and I know the inheritance tax is going to be $2 million, I can take out a $2 million policy, make them the owner and the beneficiary so it stays out of my estate. They're the owner and the beneficiary then when I die, they get $2 million tax-free. They can pay the tax bill. The ranch stays in place. Now, that's highly simplified. But, I mean, those are some of the things that this will be on this YouTube thing with the idea being that the money corner will have a little bit, you know, what's the difference between a stock and a bond? What's the difference between a CD and a passbook savings account? Um, when do I use life insurance? When do I not use it? What types of life insurance are there? Things like that. So. Super timely too. So timely. I mean, I, yeah. I was talking to some guys the other day. They said, you know what? T-bills are looking really good right now. Well, I, where do I find out about T-bills? You start Googling and there's all kinds of information. Your YouTube video uh, videos will be really helpful for someone like me, a young family wanting to invest and, and really just kind of take a little bit more of an assertive role in planning our future, I think is, is probably where most of us want to be right now. Absolutely. And the thing you have to avoid, and it's happened in the last few years, dramatically, is you know interest rates have been close to zero, right? Right. So interest really wasn't a factor in the equation when you when you did your operating loan. How much your interest was going to cost you really didn't really wasn't the major factor. Fuel was probably going to be a bigger bill than your interest bill. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're getting back up to you know we're going to be at eight percent interest before it's over. Okay. Now I, I have financed ranches at eight percent interest on owner carry loans that I've bought myself. And finance with eight percent, that was common. You know, I, that wasn't considered exorbitant. The first place we ever bought was like it, the interest rates were like seventeen and a half percent. Good. And grief. we found a, we found a, a, a place we could buy that we could assume their note at seven or six percent, I think it was. So I paid the points to assume their note. You know, it's like hog heaven. You know, it's like I'm ten percent <laughs> better than the next guy down the road, right? Okay. Yeah. But those are the things that we have to, you know, when credit becomes cheap, people get reckless. And it's like, well, I don't care if I run up my MasterCard bill because what they don't look at, if you look at your interest rate, most of you guys probably pay your credit cards off. But if you look at, there's a portion there in book in the book where I show a picture of the credit card bill. On your credit card bill now, they have to publish what what the interest rate's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. So if you've charged $1,200 in a month, if you look on that statement, it'll tell you, if you make the minimum payment, it's going to take you 14 years to pay this off. Good grief. <laughs> wow. 
That's insane. If you add $40 to it, you can pay it off in four and a half years. Yeah. Well, wow. We've been in a cycle where cash hasn't meant much, right? When money's free, cash doesn't mean anything. And cash has taken a beating lately in terms of the value of the dollar with inflation. I think we're going back to, I'm not a financial guy. This is Tom's video. But uh, we're going to get to a spot where being conservative again, paying in cash, um, that stuff's going to matter again, I think. Well, I think it does. You know, cash, you say cash is king, and for a long time, it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Because you could get a better deal on a pickup if you financed it than if you paid cash for it. Absolutely. Because they made more money off the contract they sold to the bank than they did off the truck. Oh. Mm. Insane. So, Tom, we're going to, uh, we we could go all day with you. And I'd, I'd love nothing better, but uh, you've been awfully generous with your time. Uh, so, so I'm going to make the commitment to our audience. Uh, Tom and I talk regularly. Uh, when he gets that YouTube channel up and going, we'll share that with our audience. And we urge all of you to go and check it out when it's up. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we get into late March, early April. Uh, we'll also give you the heads up on when this book comes out. And uh, we'll urge you to go check it out. Man, this this has been fabulous, Tom. We we certainly appreciate your time and all this experience and expertise you've shared with us. Well, you've been more than kind enough to invite me, and I hope I've hope I've provided something that was worthwhile. Oh man, that is so. I'm going to run off the tracks here a little bit, Tom, and and tell you we get a lot of feedback uh, from our listeners, and many of them will tell me. Hey, we listened to all the episodes. In fact, we've had a few that we go back and we listen to three and four times, just trying to glean out those little nuggets. And I think this is going to be one such episode where you're going to want to listen multiple times, whether you're you're looking for advice on your animal health or ad, advice on your finances. So uh, this is an instant classic, Tom. Thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. I appreciate it. This episode of Angus Underground was brought to you in part by Montana Ranch, the source for balanced trade Angus, which are different by design. If you love this episode, head over to where you listen to podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, check us out on social media where you can interact with us and to suggest subjects that you'd like us to cover on upcoming episodes.